and welcome to Lit Century. I'm Sandra Newman, and my co-host is Catherine Nichols. Today, our year is 1922, and our book is Kristen Lovren's Daughter by the Norwegian writer Sigrid Unset. Here with us to discuss Kristen Lovren's Daughter is Timothy Paulson, who has a personal history with the book, as we'll be hearing. And he is a writer primarily for children, though his most recent book is a biography of the Indian educational pioneer Sadhu Vaswani. The book is called A Light to the World. Timothy is also a publisher who founded Agincourt Press, specializing in history and biography with a focus on civil rights for younger readers. And among the books that he's written for children himself are New York, The New Amsterdam Colony, and Days of Sorrow, Years of Glory, which is a history of the Nat Turner slave revolt. So welcome to Timothy Paulson. I, d- I just want to start out with the, the, the background. As we probably all know, Sigrid Unset was a winner of the Nobel Prize. And this was at a time when almost all winners of the Nobel Prize were at least Scandinavian, if not straight up Norwegian. Um, and I know one of those winners was your ancestor, Tim. So, so, so I was always under the impression that it was originally a prize just for Norwegians, but that, that is not the case, as I understand. No, that's not the case. Um, it, I mean, you know, de facto, it, 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 it must seem like that because early on, a lot of Norwegians did win. And, you know, there were certainly literature candid- candidates in, in literature who, you know, were, were worthy. I mean, Ibsen, you know, but he didn't get it. Um, in, in, in 1903, I, my great grandfather got it and Tolstoy was up for it. He could have gotten it, you know. So but he was your, a renegade your great grandfather was objectively a better writer than Tolstoy and Ibsen, though, is what I understand, right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, that's, no, absolutely. <laughs> that's what happened. But, uh, this is the funny thing, and it's not to say that he's a bad writer, but as in the introduction to the Everyman edition in 1904 to his work, right? Oh, and get, give us his name, like we don't want to let him be Bjorn forgotten. Bjornstern, Bjornstern, <laughs> Bjornstern. Um, okay. But his writing was so political particularly his plays, he translated Icelandic sagas and he wrote novels of town and country life. He was prolific. But his um, his plays were, were so tied to the politics of the time that if you read them now, that introduction said, like, it's dry as, it's dry as sawdust. But at the time, people would pound their feet in the, in the theater until the dust rose up in a cloud. Just the excitement was so great. Because he was for a free Norway, they were under Swedish rule then, and and it, you know it's that's why he wound up getting banished to Minnesota, um, which is how you but, come to be with us today. Yeah, because he became yeah. a streetcar conductor, and he you know it's 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 an illegitimate connection because he basically was sleeping with whoever he could you know get his hands on. It seemed. Um, I mean, at that point, what else are you going to use your Nobel Prize for? Well, he didn't have it yet. Oh, he didn't have it ah, yet. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All he had was his status as a streetcar conductor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that that was enough. He was, um, you know. Speaking of radical politics, this uh, awkward segue. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to talk today, like, about how this book, which seems like a really conservative book, and it and it often seems to be enforcing kind of conservative values. It, it makes one incredibly radical move, which is that it centers the experience of Kristen, who actually like, leads an incredibly boring life in which 
almost nothing happens. But she has a lot of children and she just takes care of business. And meanwhile, her husband is off fighting pirates and trying to overthrow the government and being held in prison and withstanding torture. But he's actually quite a minor character and we never see any of that happen in front of us. It's all just stuff that she finds out about afterwards. So so it's sort of this, this very powerful kind of feminist and I would argue romance genre reimagining of of Norwegian 14th century history, which is not something that you would think of as naturally amenable to this treatment. Um, um, so it the things that are in favor of women or in favor of women's lives or making women's lives better, but are not quite actually feminism, like um, prohibition, mm-hmm. um, they, I, I think of those things um, as taking women's lives very seriously, but not necessarily, not necessarily, I mean, sorry, you've, probably seen the same things that I've seen about prohibition being an attempt to make women's lives better without being feminists. Yes. Like, yeah. Uh, to to mm-hmm. prevent men from uh, beating women. Um, and I think that there's a kind of Christianiness to the idea of prohibition, which is if everybody just sorted out their lives and um, did a better job with their livestock Um we wouldn't have the problems we have. It, yeah. It like yeah. Life is kind of the problem. But um, it is like Kristen's whole dilemma is why, why, why can't men be both sexy and look after the livestock? Yeah. You know, <laughs> she could have just married Simon if she wanted someone to look after the livestock as she often reflects, but, yeah. but no, that's not really psychologically possible. Yeah. And she doesn't see it as society's problem. It's the problem of, responsibility at all being something that that you just need to stay alive it's not because society disapproves of women Mm -hmm. um being being in charge of who they sleep with which again i think is it's a little bit taking women seriously and women's lives seriously but not feminism because it's not about changing the political realities of women's lives yeah it's almost like it's in the negative like in the sense of showing the irresponsibility of Erland, for instance, you know, and, and Erland standing in for men, you know, adventure seeking men in general. And she just plows ahead and does the business that needs to be done, you know. Um, but you see where women are situated that, that, you know, he can get away with all this and he does all this. I mean, there is Simon and there's examples of men who aren't like that, but but it, it kind of holds him up as an example of, you know, she she's constantly having to make up for his mistakes or or, you know, defend him. And yeah, it's it's interesting. It's kind of like we we are shown the, it's very like the prohibition movement actually because we're shown the fallout from masculinity and all of the great masculine joys of fighting pirates, and trying to overthrow the government and going off hunting and not. And, and having sex, of course, with other women, like all of yeah. that, she's the one who has to take care of the problems that right. arise from that. She picks up the pieces. And he gets to go be a streetcar conductor. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it, 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 I think it's very telling just to, to one incident from the book that always stuck with me was when Erland uh, borrows a cart for their wedding 
for his wedding with Kristen, he borrows a cart from Lavrens, her father, and he never returns it, or he doesn't, you know, on his own stick return it. And it bothers Lavrens because it's a sign that her wedding is, her, her marriage is not going to go well. Yeah, that's yeah, a really yeah, lovely moment. Symbolic. Yeah, and yeah. Lavrens is like, he has to remind him, that's all. And and Erland is sort of like, well, okay, you had to remind me, what's the big deal? So it's it's actually like a classic example of making someone else do the emotional labor. As the emotional and also a spiritual payoff of being the person who actually shows up and keeps their promises and is serious about their responsibilities. And that that's something that you could see in Kristen and you could also see it in Lavrens, her father. Um, but I think that that's, that's actually not the direction that feminism eventually took in the 20th century. Saying what women have in society is plenty and in fact is better than what men have. And um, women are fine because they get to become nuns when their husbands die of pirates or... Right sleeping around um, that, that a lot of women did not accept that as just as good as equal rights. I mean, I, I, I yeah, I, I, I think like if you made a modern analogy, you would say, Unset would say a single mother who does all the backbreaking work and, and, and is responsible and does all these things is actually lucky because she gets to be the moral character. She gets to build her own, spiritual and moral world you know in, in, in a healthy thoroughgoing way but in the modern world it's understood that it's an unfair division of labor you know that the, that the spiritual upbuilding of being the one who does everything and picks up all the pieces doesn't compensate for the fact that that you, you don't have no have, power you don't have power right you don't have the opportunity to go to college and you know and explore your own um you know, individual potential, you're, you're bound down by all this work. Yeah, I think that there's some tension there. And I think that there was tension at the time when this came out also, because I think that people were very upset about her going from a more Lutheran slash atheist tradition in the, deep into Catholicism yeah. at a time when a lot of the rest of the world and intellectual women in particular were trying to be more like in the 1920s, like there's obviously a lot of women who are looking for more worldly power. That I read, I read this novel when I was the first time when I was 13 with, with, with the strong Lutheran bias. In other words, my father's a Lutheran pastor. I grew up in the Lutheran church. We had a farm in far Northern Norway that we visited in 1969 when I was a kid. And, you know, um, it, we've had it in the family since Viking days. <laughs> and, and so I, all of the detail like of the novel was familiar to me, but also I, I, I read it with an eye toward like Lutheran theology. And when Sandy mentioned, <clears throat> you know, the Catholic connection at first, I, I really bridled at it. And then I realized, no, it, it, it really, that is, that is going on. There, there, it's not just that it's the medieval church. And of course it's Catholic. They're very cast. It's a very sort of Catholic view. The suffering, you know, that Kristen goes through, which is kind of tedious. I mean, at a certain point, the novel is like slow motion doom scrolling. You know. Well, uh, so I was interested in the 
in your perspective, from a, a Lutheran perspective, what would this look like to her readers, her first readers, who are shocked by the level of Catholicism? Uh, well, people were much more attuned to dogmatic, or to dogma, and and all, not just dogma, but like the Lutheran mindset is is, is very powerful in in Scandinavia, and and um, I I think that her emphasis on the sort of laudatory aspects of suffering, I mean, near the end when she's, you know, she self-isolates up in this hut and she's kind of starving and, and, you know, she, and as she winds up, you know, spoiler alert, um, dying, tending to victims of the plague, you, you, you can see that Lutherans would, would want the emphasis to be on grace you know, on 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 the sort of you know goodness of God and and um, work. You're not works. Works is a Catholic thing. Grace. Yeah, is a little- I think that there's a lot of of work versus works going on under the surface here, and I'm I'm interested in in which things kind of stand out to you there. Yeah. Um, I you know. It's interesting because it's not the Catholic view. I mean, she's, it doesn't really represent the Catholic view that works are rewarded necessarily. Like, like she doesn't wind up, you know, in, in a sort of triumphant, powerful position because she did such hard work. But she does get these sort of spiritual consolations, as the Catholics would put it. You know, she, she comes to an epiphany, you know, I think after Erlen's death, um, about life and and that comes through suffering and that is not the lutheran view the lutheran view is god is good nature is good um bad things do happen but they're not connected to what we do though at the same time um you're talking about nature um and how the book feels like it's describing your own experience of of nature on a norwegian farm um it's so vivid in how it describes nature and the landscape and the sort of the being too hot and too cold realities of, of like encountering the physical yeah. world. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's it, that part of it too. Yeah. 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 And which is partly why, you know, I felt it was, was more distinctly Lutheran when I read it, Initially, and then when I read it again, I still, I was, I was picking up kind of what I wanted to pick up, which was that it's this message also about like Lovren's is the template, right? And um, his his habit of kindness, I, you know, w- without, I mean, you know, he could have been frustrated with his wife, you know, and 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 he was, but he took it on himself. He didn't, um, he believed in doing good things without, without any immediate benefit. Like the way that he, he helped out his local landholders and you know, the ones up in the woods who were illegal essentially, but like he, he, he saw to his people and cared for them and he was modeling a kind of Lutheran God in that way. That's really interesting because Sandy also was talking uh, in our previous episode about um, the monk in the first one who is saying that Kristen should have 
sort of withdrawn from the world before encountering the world, meaning going to, going to God with her wreath. Um, and yeah, um, and actually, seeing, the first book is called the the wreath. So it's yeah, and seeing those as two different, like Laverne's is fully in the world, but he's just kind of ignoring the the parts that would cause him suffering if he spent more time in them almost. And then the monk is withdrawing completely from the world. And then the, um, the place that Kristen ends up after Erlen's death that you were mentioning is more about how the way that she has suffered and the way that um, she never stops being irritated by her daughter-in-law and stuff like that, um, that that is actually her spiritual presence it's her gift well, but there is there is there yeah there, there there is a sense that she gains something from this um i mean i i don't know i i, I think there's something profound about the fact of like Glavern's impotence yeah it, it, which is so I think it's at the end of I can't remember exactly which point it happens, but when 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 he's described as um, sort of stretched out like the blood eagle, which is the Viking means of execution, where they just rip open the rib cage, and it's it's connected to his just despair that that he isn't actually a man for his wife, even though he's regarded as knightly. He's not a knight, but. You know, he's regarded in this way of just the ideal man, but the one thing he can't do is this physical, you know, satisfying of his of his wife. Is he in the world? I mean, in a way he is, but in a way he's um, the opposite of Ireland. There's an interesting kind of dichotomy in the book between the, the kind of fairy world. This is like something I only picked up on the second reading where it actually begins with an encounter between Kristen and the fairy woman in the woods. Right. And later on, at, of course, um, Fru Oshild is also seen as a witch. Like the, and then there are various moments when the people like give way and perform animist rituals. And the one actual piece of magic in the book is when Kristen does an, a sort of an animist ritual and it saves the life of Simon's child. So, so these forces are treated as if they're real and they're very much associated with Ireland and with sexuality and like the pagan world still has power and that's opposed to the powers of people like Lovrens and Simon who are sort of solid and good and Christian. Um, and I, and I thought that was interesting in the book that it, I mean, in a world, a pre-Lutheran world, the the opposing force, which is so much identified with sexuality in the book and, and so much framed as, as sinful, but also very appealing, um, is a pagan force. Right. And her, uh, Kristen's, I mean, this is what partly what makes it modern to me is Kristen's compulsion about Ireland. It, it's funny because my parents named my sister after Kristen Lava's daughter, and they almost named me Erland, which I think would have caused um, <laughs> some psychological stress. But like, I, but her compulsion toward him is very physical. It's very pagan. It's very, I mean, her kind of, I, so she's got this part in her and, and she does perform that ritual for Simon's child. And like, um, 
That, that's why it's not black and white to me. So uh, I think like that all of that, the paganism and the Catholicism, um, and just remembering that this was written by someone who was still like nominally a Norwegian Lutheran, so she's writing her way into becoming a Catholic. Uh, so it's, it's very much like a nostalgic view of, of these things as the things that are actually potent in different ways. Um, but Tim, Tim, you had a thing about how it's also really a modern book. Uh, the psychology mm-hmm. in particular is, is actually yeah, very modern. Mm-hmm. What, what struck me most when I, when I first read it <clears throat> was the way in which Unset, and this probably has something to do with her parents being anthropologists and sort of forward thinkers, but she invests the book uh, with, with a modern psychology in the sense that Lovren's wife, I, I, Ranford, is um, clearly chronically depressed, but it vests itself in the book and, you know, in the 14th century as people not understanding why she's not happy. I mean, she lost three kids, but it's the 14th century. Everybody, you know, understands that. But she's got a beautiful daughter. Her husband is comely. They have, you know, great property. Um, and her husband doesn't beat her or even say a harsh word when he's drunk, uh, which is, which again, you know, you see, all right, but... She self-isolates. I, Lovrens moves their whole, the whole family after the death of the children, nearer to her folks, to her, to her community, thinking that she might be more social. But she still only does the civil. She doesn't. She doesn't. Um, you know, all of the ways that she's described, you can tell that this is somebody who has a psychological depression. And of course, that would happen in the 14th century, just like it does now. But it wouldn't be understood, you know, that way. There's the two different layers that you can see in the text that Unset wrote, which is the the society that that sees happiness as um, like good luck, um, and then also the experience of characters who are feeling it as a psychological state of enjoyment or connection, not. Um, not only the question of whether you have property, uh, that both of those are present in what she wrote. Yes, and happiness and the nature of it is, I think, part of her concern. You see that Erlen, even though he gets to go do all these things that seem to be like pursuing his bliss, he's never really happy. He, he acts more like the spoiled child in a way that, I mean, at one point, they're dividing up an inheritance and, and he tries to steal some towels that are worth only like five bucks or five marks. Right. <laughs> and Lovren's finds him and, you know, and doing it. And he's so ticked off that he actually beats him up. He shakes him like a towel. And it's, it's, it's a, such a trivial thing, but again, it's psychologically revealing that kind of thing. Like, like, like stealing cheesy thefts and, 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 you know, he really wants these things for whatever reason. And so he's just going to steal them. He's not, he's not forthright or honest. That's not the, the work of somebody who's happy. That's the work of somebody who has a, a problem. And, you know, and, and, and Erlen does. And, and his whole life is like, it, it even ends in a really sort of, you know, sad way. I mean, he's kind of killed in a melee that 
with no ordinary soldiers and just accidentally gets struck in the groin. And it, it, it's like his life isn't what he wants it to be. It's not what Kristen envisioned in a knight, you know, in a hero. Um, that's a, that's actually a good point because I, I think that one of the many ways in which this is a really Catholic book is that the characters who succeed are the ones who have a good death. And there's a lot of description yeah. of the deaths of the characters, particularly framed it this way. Like Kristen ha- obviously has a wonderful death, dying in the service of plague victims. Lovrence's death is also like lovingly described, and he dies in this kind of state of of peace. And Simon's death as well. Like he he manages to he has like a perfect death despite dying in this awful way from gangrene. Um, but also Ulfiel, the um, beautiful younger sister um, who's crushed by a tree and then chronically ill until she dies later. Um, that That's something in the previous episode, Sandy, you were thinking that there is a way in which it seems like she's being punished for beauty, but in another way, she is achieving the good death that the monk is wishing yes, for for yeah. Kristen. And she's always like described as angelic. You know, yeah, and she has her family around her, and um, nobody nobody thinks badly of her at all. The other element of um, Erland's death, though, is that uh, there's a taboo against naming a child against uh, after the parent yeah. or after a living relative because one of them will die. And then Kristen does that with the, their youngest child. She names the child Erland, and the child dies, and then the father dies also. So there's like an extra level of him having a bad death, which is that he's not surrounded by loving family. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, another good reason I'm I'm happy that my parents didn't name me Ireland after all. <laughs> I also think like it's it's very it's very interesting about human psychology in general that your parents thought of naming you Ireland instead of Simon or Laverance or one of the characters in the book who actually do write and have good lives. And that's that's people well, for is, you. <laughs> I mean, my sister Kristen. I mean, she she I, we read all of Onset, you know, and. I took lessons from the book, but extracted them as a Lutheran with a Lutheran psychology and a Lutheran, you know, um, their piety. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense in how she was received also and how angry it seems people were when she did convert, because I think it was not initially read as a Catholic book until she did convert. And then I think people felt like they had been... um, that, that something profoundly Norwegian and yeah. Lutheran right. had been sort of uh, taken from them. You know, it's like J.K. Rowling. Like you don't get to retcon your book into being hateful. Not that not that yeah. Inset was doing that, but just that she sort of changed the meaning of it by by. Yeah, it's a, yeah. Well, right, and when a book is so so close, it's almost got a liturgical value to the Norwegians, you know. Yeah, and it has that feeling like War and Peace of the characters feel like they exist beyond the page and like you could have opinions of them that extend beyond what the, what the author actually wants you to think. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. That's right. They have a life of their own. So you could legitimately name your kid Erland without 
it seeming like a curse. I don't know about that. I think that's pushing it a bit far, honestly. <laughs> I like the name, but just like growing up with the whole, you know. <laughs> and you, you'd be called Earl. Let's be honest. You'd just become Earl. Oh, Actually, the, Tim, do you know that? I think Errol, isn't that like the word for, for elf or something? In I think it oh, is. I, I, mean, well, I think the oh. Errol Koenig in German is the elf king, but I could be wrong. Oh, you, no, you're right. You're right. You're right. It is. It is. And, and um, which, you know, we were talking about the paganism in, in the book, and I was talking about psychologically that, that Kristen's obsession with Erland, you know, who's going out running and killing and is is so modern in the sense that she can't give it up even though he really is sort of a representation of this pagan principle So that has been our second and final episode on Kristen Lavin's daughter. And we'd like to thank Timothy Paulson again. And as always, we'd like to thank Adam Bear for our theme music and LitHub for hosting us. And if you'd like to chat with us, you can tweet at us on LitCenturyPod or email us at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.